Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 28. Uh, Y'all can stay standing as I read. Words will be here on the screen, and it says this. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened. Is anybody tired of here? Yeah. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news uh, that those of us in here that are tired and are searching for rest, you tell us in your word that you are the source of rest, Father. Help us to believe it, and by believing it, help us to act on our belief and take hold of it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Why don't you take your seats? Matthew eleven twenty eight. that's such good news, right? Jesus has promised rest for everybody that's tired or weak or weary and would come to him. That's good news. Here's the thing that makes Christianity so hard. In order to take a hold of that promise, do you know what you have to have? Faith. Uh, Part of being human is not just that you and I can't help at times but to do the wrong thing. Is it even when we try to do the right thing? Uh, We don't do the right things right. All we need is faith to take a hold of that. Uh, But you and I know uh, that our faith is so often mixed with doubt. And here's all of what doubt does. Doubt, Doubt causes unrest, right? So doubt is like... Um, getting to the airport, me and Keith uh, took a little trip this past week and on Friday, you know, I parked my car at my house and Keith was driving me around all day and he was fine. He was at rest, you know, ease. He's got a little Camaro out there. So he's driving, you know, speeding, flexing and all that. Um, He's fine. And we get to the airport and as we get ready to take all our bags out and go and check in for the plane, he starts to tap around like this, and he's like, y'all don't know where my wallet is. He doesn't have his ID. So all of that rest that he had, he gets to this point, and now it's unrest. He's trying to search for something that he thought that he had. That's what doubt's like, right? That we sit here, and week in and week out, we think that we have faith. We read a thing like this, and we're like, all right, God, I'm going to come to you. I'm weary, and I'm burdened, and yeah, I know that you're going to provide rest for my souls. And then we hit hard times. And you and I start to tap around. We can't find that faith that we'd once had. That's what makes this so hard is that it seems simple that all we need is faith. But we find that doubt finds us. What do we do? How do we take a hold of this promise? Well, I'm glad that you asked. Um, The Bible is not just like this anthology of sayings of Christ. It is 
a story about who Christ is, what he's done in the world. And so even as we get to one of the most famous things that he said, we have to remember that this comes in the context. Jesus says this at the end of chapter 11. So what I want to do is I want to start at the beginning of chapter 11. And let's just read, and we're going to go through this whole thing and find out how we get this rest that Christ promises. And you'll find that there are people in this story that struggle with the same thing that you do. John chapter 11, starting at verse 1, it says this. When Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he moved on from there to teach and preach in their towns. Here's where we are so far. Matthew chapter 1 through 4 is the origin story of Christ. God in the flesh has come into the world to set things right. In Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus proclaims the authority of God in word. He teaches like nobody else does. Matthew 8 and 9, Jesus proclaims his godness Indeed, he heals, he's flexing, he's showing his might so that people would follow. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus now takes this power and authority that he has and he transfers it and he gives it to the 12 so that they could go and do the same thing. So thus far, if you read Matthew chapter 1 through 10, you should have no reason at all to doubt that Jesus could do what he said that he would do. But this is what makes doubt so funny, right? It's illogical. It finds us. After Jesus had just got done with all that, look here at verse 2. Now when John heard, hear this, in prison, what the Christ was doing, he sent a message through his disciples and asked them, are you the one to come or should we expect somebody else? John the Baptist the man who Jesus looked and said, look, the scriptures prophesied that he would come to testify about me. Later on in this passage, Jesus is going to say, listen, there is no greater prophet than John. He looks and he says, "Uh, Jesus, I'm doubting that you are, are you really the one to come or should we be? Searching for somebody else. The very first thing that I want to say is this. Look, here's the thing about doubt. Doubt often finds us when we find ourselves in unexpected hard times. John prophesied that Jesus would come, that he would do what God had said that he would do. His Prophecy was that the Messiah would come, and what you see in Matthew 3, what he says is this world is set right, and you have to remember his prophecy is this. The axe is at the root, the Messiah is going to come, vengeance and judgment, God's going to come down and he's going to get all the bad guys and set things right, and Jesus is right here. And then the very next scene, do you know what we find out? John is arrested and thrown in jail by the bad guys. And do you know what Jesus does when he finds out John is in jail, thrown there by the bad guys? He leaves the town that John is in so that he doesn't get thrown in the jail by the bad guys. And what Jesus does is he spends time not bringing vengeance. He spends his time healing eating dinner 
being the life of the party, there's no more wine. Christ came through. He turned all of this into wine. And what John's saying is, wait a minute, wait a minute. I expected something else of this God. And now I find myself here in this hard time. You understand this because, like, you've been there. You know what it's like to expect God to do something good, and it seems like he's doing good for everybody else. He's painting the, uh, his goodness on a canvas that's not yours. And what you start to find is this, look, doubt and depression kind of feel like this, like, middle school couple. Where you find one, the other one is sure to follow. Just there. It's hard to escape it. Hard, to, hard times don't, don't convince us that God is bad. What hard times do is they just make us curious about God's goodness. It just makes us wonder, did I really make the right decision in following? Think about it. Go back in your life and think about the times where your doubt of God was the greatest. And I think if we zoomed in on those times and kind of widened the scope of things and we looked at what was starting to go on in your life, I would guarantee it's probably at a time where your life was just in the pits. I think we spend a lot of time in the church talking about um, how people should make the right decisions. And we don't spend time and say how is important. uh, But I think how is only one part of decision making. When is a huge part of decision making. When you are in despair, when you are in the midst of a depression, hear this. that's a better time to have discussions than it is to make a decision. It's a better time not to decide what you're going to do with you because your vision, your judgment is cloudy. It's in these times that it's best to take your doubts directly to Christ and say, yo, are you really the one or should we be expecting somebody else? And what we find is that, yo, your doubt is not a dead end to faith. Everybody has doubts. Your doubt may be a detour, but it's only so that your faith may be deepened and you can understand better. Look, look at what takes place here in verse 4. Verse 4, Jesus replied to him, look, go and report to John what you hear and see. Am I the one? The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Those with left leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told good news. Here's what doubt and depression do. They make you and I focus in on our world and determine God's goodness by what goes on in our world. What Jesus says to him is, you've got to get your eyes up and not just look at your world. Look at the world and see what God is up to. But Jesus does more than just say, look on the bright side of things. 
for anybody that knows their Bible, what you would see is that Jesus is very clearly pointing back to two passages in particular, Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61, both of which talk about what things will look like when the Messiah comes. Isaiah 35, uh, starting in verse 4 and 5, it reads like this. Say to the cowardly, be strong, don't fear. Here is your God. Vengeance is coming. God's retribution is coming. He will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Isaiah 61, verse 1 and 2 says this. The spirit of the Lord God is on me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of our God's vengeance to comfort all who mourn. Do you notice what Jesus left out when he told them to report back to to John what they heard and saw? That big word that I put in bold and red, and that's vengeance. Hear this. Not because God will not take vengeance on wrongdoers. Jesus is saying, look, go back and tell him, look, all of the good stuff. Go back and tell him all of the goodness, all of the mercies of of God. That's what I came for right now. Look, judgment is coming. John warned them of that. But Jesus comes in and is like, yo, yo, look, look, look. I know you're in a hard time right now. I know you want my vengeance to come. But the problem is, I've got to preach good news to the poor. I'm trying to bring goodness here. John, you warned them of the wrath to come. Jesus is saying, John, I'm trying to warm, warm them to the goodness of God. First. And then in verse 6, what he says is this, look. And blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. What he's basically saying is, you know, this is what I came to do now. And he's, John, uh, blessed is the one who doesn't get mad at the way that I want to do things, even if it isn't the way that they would do things. Blessed is the one that is okay letting me be God and maybe doing things that you wouldn't expect. And what I love about this is after Jesus says this, look here in verse 7. As these men were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. And then what he does from verse 7 to 15 is hear this. He defends John. Jesus doesn't do what I would have done. If I'm Jesus and I'm out here working and somebody comes and says, "Are, are you the one? I'd be like, am I the one? (laughs) Peter, they said, am I the one? (laughs) Peter, tell them what you see. No, no. Bartimaeus, tell them what you see. What did they used to call you? Blind Bartimaeus. What do they call you now? Bartimaeus, why? Because I gave you sight. (laughs) I'd be sitting here, am I the one? And then as they left, I would have kept on. James, tell him what I did. 
Am I the one? Hear this. Listen to what Jesus does with his doubt. Jesus graciously answers the question. And then from verse 7 to 15, what he's doing is he's reassuring them. No, no, hey, listen. John did have doubt, but John is still who he claimed to be. His role as a prophet, his usefulness to God is still just as useful. And he does this, hear this. He speaks to the crowd about John, I think, to help them see that doubt doesn't make you any less useful. It's recorded here in the pages of Scripture, I think, to help all of us see. Doubt doesn't make you any less useful. It's natural. It's to be expected. So it is no wonder in the past seven years, you can go back to Trayvon Martin's murder in 2012. The election of Donald Trump in 2016. Philando Castile out in Sterling being murdered. And all these injustices starting to come to light. And for people who have been uh, affected by them to say, man, this is really hard for me. I am really doubting all these things that I know about God. God, are you really the one or should we be expecting somebody else? If that's you in here, look, what you don't need is condemnation. You need compassion. And and I think this is right here to let you know, hey, John found himself on the wrong side of a government that was aimed at unjustly persecuting people. And that was enough to cause him, the cousin of Jesus, who baptized Jesus and saw a a dove come down and heard God. Your doubt is not unwarranted. It's not unfounded. It is not to be condemned. Listen. Doubt is not just about True faith is not just about the absence of doubt. True faith has to do with uh, the actions of doubt. What does your doubt cause you to do? And in John, what we see is somebody who had doubts about Jesus, but it didn't harden into this distrust. He said, I doubt that God is who he claims to be. And do you know what he did? He went. He took his doubt to Jesus' front doorstep. And Jesus unlocked the door and said, come on. Your doubt is not a, a dead end. You can't be scared to travel down those roads. If you just close the door on your doubts, you'll have an undeveloped faith. You've got to travel down those roads and not be scared. You don't have a God that's going to cast you out. All right. So if doubt isn't the dead end or the big danger, what is? Um, 
there's a few conversations that go on here. Jesus talks to John, and then he talks to the crowd about John's doubt. But then what he does is he changes gears, and he says, all right, it's, doubt's not going to be the end of your faith. But he does start to rebuke this crowd because of this, like, distrust that they had. So what he's going to say is there's this group of folks, right? There's a group of people that are on the wrong side of every door. Y'all know what that means? Right? When they're on the inside, they wish that they could be out. When they're on the outside, they wish that they, they could be in. Y'all have been in relationships with people where it doesn't matter what you do. It's always the wrong thing. And it leaves you to say you, ha- you get to a point in time where, where you say, uh, maybe the problem's not me. Maybe the problem is you. So look here at verse 16. Christ says this, to what should I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to other children. We played the flute for you, but you didn't dance. We sang a lament, but you didn't mourn. Look, for John came neither eating nor drinking. And they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. So what he's going to say right here is this, look, doubt, doubt says this, God, things are not what I expected. I don't know if I can trust you. I don't know if I can. Distrust says this, I don't know much, but I know that I can't trust you regardless of what you do. Those are worlds apart. And and so here's what I mean by this. Jesus Christ says this as he talks about how John came into the world and how he came into the world. What he says is this, look, John John was fasting. John was, was there and it's skin and bones, eating locusts and honey, warning people of the wrath to come. And while people came and looked at him and enjoyed what he said at times, they, there was a crowd of people that rejected him. They said, he's got a demon. Jesus comes through and says, wait, wait, wait. Y'all, John's out here fasting. Y'all are mad at him. I come out here feasting. I got a little bit of a gut. I got a little dab out. I'm eating well. And now y'all are, y'all are critiquing how I do things. What Jesus is saying is, no, no, listen. It's not that people had a problem with the method and the approach. It's that they had a problem with the message. So look at what he says in verse 20, and it'll be in, increasingly more clear. Then he proceeded, hear this, to denounce the towns where most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. What he's saying is, now listen, there's an aspect of when you hear about God's goodness and experience his badness, that can cause you to doubt. But then what he's saying is he's talking to the group of people who just witnessed all of the stuff that he did in Acts 8 and 9. Where he's healing people, raising the dead, the lame, or walking. 
The deaf hear. So you have a group of people experiencing the goodness of God. They're experiencing this temporary relief. And do you know what his indictment is? That they didn't repent. Or in other words, oh, listen, no, no, no. You want God's goodness. You just don't want his guidance. What he's saying is, oh, you want God to be good to you and heal you, to fix the things that are wrong. But what you don't want is for him to say, uh, the things that you're chasing after are not going to satisfy your soul. They may give you temporary relief, but they're just going to lead you to more unrest. People saw the miracles and they said, my turn, my turn, my turn. When Jesus said people should have seen the miracles and their response should have been, I've got to make a U-turn. I have to let you guide and direct my life and what I do. And Jesus is saying that they didn't want either. As Christians, sometimes one of the things that you and I have to know, especially as we talk about God's demands, what he wants from us is that regardless of the approach that you take, there are going to be certain people that have such a distrust of God, they won't heed the warning. And even the warning, even hearing about all of the good things that God does, that's not going to draw them. I do think what we see here is that um, you just can't talk to everyone the same way. There are people like John, the Baptist, whose position is secure, but he's doubting. And so with somebody that is spiritually well, but they just don't know that they are, do you know what they need? Not a confrontation. They need comfort and encouragement. No, no, listen, your doubt is okay. Let's just make sure that your doubt goes in the right way. But then for people who are not spiritually well, but think that they are, they do not need Oh, no, no, it's going to be okay. What they need is a nice, healthy dose of, like Christ says in verse 21, woe to you. They need to be challenged. They need to be waken up. There's a way of thinking and living which leads to death. And here's what Jesus is trying to get them. To not just want his goodness, but to long for his guidance. To follow him. To live their whole life for him. It's kind of like this. Um, uh, anesthesia gives temporary relief, but it doesn't fix the problem. Summer after graduating high school, um, I had this abscess in my uh, mouth from a tooth that had to be extracted, um, and it hurt bad. Uh, so WebMD was already out at this time, so I go on WebMD, and it's like, you know, what's the worst that can take place from an abscess? And yeah, I mean, it could cause an infection. Your throat could close up, and you could die. So I'm like, all right, um, I don't want to die, so let me go to the dentist. I go to the dentist, and I sit down in the chair, 
And as he looks, he says, all right, you have an abscess. And he actually repeats back to me the same things that I read. But then what he does is he takes this needle and he gives me a shot of Novocaine. Instantly, hear this, the pain and discomfort was gone, vanished. I have two options at that point. I can get up and say, problem solved. The discomfort was the thing that really got on my nerves. Thank you. I'm out. I'm going to use my, uh, my freedom from pain to go and live life like I want to. Or I could say, oh, all right, you gave me freedom from pain, and I'm grateful. You must know what you're doing. I'm actually going to stay here and listen to everything that you say is wrong with me. And I'm going to let you work on me so that I'll be fixed. If I choose to take the temporary relief and go on my way, do you know the words that the dentist would say to me? Woe to you. Woe to you. Ah, You experienced my goodness, but you didn't want my guidance. And hear this, that's just a temporary aspect. At some point, it will wear off, and the thing that is still wrong with you will still be wrong. But even if after you experience this relief, if you sit in the chair and you experience the temporary discomfort, it'll be different. You'll be healed. You'll have rest. As you think about your relationship with God, I wonder which one of these makes up the basis of how you relate to him. I wonder if you sit here right now and as you're recounting all of the things that you need rest from, what's in your head are all the temporary things that you just wish would be fixed. That relationship, that job, that marriage, my money. All of those are are fine and they are good things. The only problem is, um, in Matthew 8 and 9, Jesus healed a lot of people. He even raised people from the dead. Do you know what all of them have in common right now? They're dead. They're gone. Those who put their trust in Christ live with him, but all of the relief that he brought there was temporary. The miracles that Christ did, his power here on earth, was not just meant to testify to the fact that he was good, but it was meant to point to the fact that he himself was God. And if he's God, then he should be our guide. And this is what makes you and I the most scared or the most fearful. Because even after hearing all that, we still believe that the person that's going to take best care of me is me. 
to give control of your entire life, your ambitions, your dreams, your goals, your desires, what you chase after is a scary thing. And you hear the demands of Christianity and you may stay away because you think you, you think of all the stuff that you'll have to give up. But I want you to look at this. Right? The passage we read in the beginning where Jesus gives the invitation to come to him, it's seated in a context. It comes at the end of all of this. And what I love about those words is that he speaks those words, hear this, to people that have doubted who just need to be reassured to people that distrust him and need to repent, he still gives the same conversation to all of them. The same invitation for rest he gives to all, to everybody. But before he gives that, even those words are situated in a context. Look at verse 30. 25, or here's my main point. Uh, It's probably about time to give that since I'm getting ready to uh, near the end. Um, Jesus is going to give an invitation, and Jesus is going to make a request. Come to me. Now, when somebody makes a request, you and I are usually um, used to a request being somebody needing something from us. Right, so um, I traveled this past week to Denver on Thursday, came back on Friday, Saturday. Chandra goes out of town, so me and Ava at the crib all day by ourselves yesterday, and she did not care that I was tired. She made requests after requests after requests after requests after requests. And I gave and gave and gave and gave and gave, and I was exhausted. Jesus' requests aren't like that. Jesus is going to request that we would give everything to him, but it's not because he needs anything. Jesus' request to you is this, that you would receive his rest. The request that he makes It's not that he wants something from you. He wants something for you. But the only way that you can get what he wants for you is if you give him everything. But if you give him everything, you don't really lose anything. Let me show you how this plays out. Jesus talks to John about his doubt, talks to the rest of the crowd about John's doubt, Then he talks to them about their own distrust. But he doesn't just go right into the invitation. He takes a break. And what we see in verse 25 is he starts to talk to God. Right? It says this. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, because this was your good pleasure. All things have been entrusted to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except for the Father, and no one knows the Father except for the Son, and anyone to whom the Son desires to reveal to him. Yeah, yeah, did y'all see what he did right there? 
He's having this conversation with people, and then he just stops and starts to pray to God out loud in such a way that everybody heard him. He wanted to be overheard. And as he's being overheard, do you know the first thing that he says about God? Not that he's creator. Not that he's ruler. But that he's primarily and most fundamentally father. Do you know what that does to people that find themselves doubting if God is really good? or distrusting the stuff that he asks of us. It changes our perspective on what God really wants. If he wants something primarily from us or for us. Jesus starts off and he calls God Father. Before he talks about God's rule, he talks about his particular and specific relationship with God. And if you think that I'm making too much of this point, up to this point in the Gospel of Matthew, no less than 15 times, Jesus has already referred to God as Father. Father. I started reading this book a a few weeks ago called Delighting in the Trinity. Um, and um, it is a book now that has made its way to the top of my list. If I ever meet anybody that just places their faith in the Lord and says, what's the first book that I should read outside of the Bible? It's this one by Michael Reeves. And so I'm just going to read you this quote just to cement what I'm trying to say in all of this. Look, he says this, since God is before all things a father and not primarily creator or ruler, All of his ways are beautifully fatherly. It's not that this God does being father as a day job, only to kick back in the evenings as plain old God. It's not that he has a nice blob of fatherly icing on top. He is father all the way down. Thus, all that he does, he does as father. That is who he is. He creates as a father, and he rules as a father. And that means the way he rules over creation is most unlike the way any other God would rule over creation. Here's the point that he makes. The reason why the Bible talks about God as father, and Jesus Christ comes on the scene and says, if anybody's really going to know what God is like, it's going to be the son that reveals him is this. If you think of God primarily as a creator or a ruler, do you know what that's going to create for you? Work. If God is primarily a ruler, then he has an order to the way that the world works, and he has laws. And you're constantly going to be concerned over, am I doing enough to finally have rest? Am I keeping his laws enough? Am I reading enough? Am I praying enough? Am I kind enough? Am I loving enough? But if God is a father and Jesus Christ is the son and there is a Holy Spirit that rounds out this unity, then what we find is that 
before creation, before God had anything or anyone to rule, he was not concerned primarily with creating or ruling, but loving. So then when God creates the world, he creates as a father. You don't create to get an employee. You don't create so you can have a bunch of people do stuff for you. Do you know why you create? So that that love, that relationship, that security, it could overflow to somebody else. I long for the day when I don't have to stay up late and wash the dishes and clean up the house before my wife gets home today. I long for the day that Ava is of an age where I can put her to work. (laughs) But what I find out now is that at this age, there's, there's nothing really productive that she can do. Hear this. I'm doing. She's resting. I'm cleaning up after her. She's watching Disney Plus. That's what a father does. And the rules and the laws that I give her are so that she can better enjoy that rest. It's not to take anything from her. It's to help her enjoy the security that comes from being mine. And what Jesus is saying is he starts off and he says, listen, when it comes to to this God, nobody can figure him out. The only way that you can know him, what Christ says, is through me. So what you have is this exclusiveness of relationship. Jesus is the perfect son with perfect faith and no doubt and no distrust. But do you know what else you see in here in this text, not just an exclusiveness of relationship, but an excitement when it comes to revelation. As sure as he talks about he's the only one that knows God, he's saying, but my aim, his goal, the reason why Jesus came is so that all of us could know him. So that you and I can know and enjoy and experience that rest, that relationship, that trust. And the most exclusive of revelation, hear this, is met with the most inclusive of invitations. 28, what he says here is, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls, not just for your situations, but for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. People wrongly would read this text and say, yeah, the law has been all about doing, 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 doing. And what Christ has done means that it's done. And they would read this as if there are no demands placed on my life at all. That's not what this means. Because as Jesus says, come. Do you know the very next thing that he says? He says, take my yoke on you. Do you know what a yoke is? It's an instrument that you put on animals 
to get them to work. So you would yoke up these two oxen and they would pull this plow. When a teacher back in this day would talk about their yoke, they would talk about it in terms of discipleship, the way that you follow, the way that you live. Do you know what makes Jesus' yoke's yoke better? It's not that there are less demands on it than the law. It's just that there's a different master. There's a master, look at this, that doesn't discard failures. Did you see who the invitation went out to? Not to the wise, not to the strong, not to those that have worked hard and become the cream of the crop. What he says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened. He doesn't give an invitation to folks that are the cream of the crop. He gives an invitation to people that are the bottom of the barrel, people that would feel discarded. Do you know why? So that when that doubt starts to creep up in your heart, when you make those missteps, when you cross those lines that you never thought that you would, you don't think there's no way that a God like that would want somebody like me and stay away. What you think is, I'm weary, I'm weak, I'm burdened. I gave the best of my time, the best of myself to being beautiful. And I worked hard for it. But then I got into an accident and I was unable to keep up the body that I worked for. And everything that I achieved as a result of my beauty failed me. And I'm weary and I'm burdened. I worked hard for status and achievement, trying to perform and trying to be good. And I got it and attained it. But then I made a mistake. And the mistake that I made was broadcast on social media and everybody who I got their respect that I thought provided rest for for my soul, I found out I was canceled real quick. And every other thing that you work for, what you find out is every master that you work for, if you fail that master, it'll let you go. Jesus is saying, no, no, listen, everybody that is weary, that is weak, that is burdened, that has tried to find satisfaction some other means, and it's failed you, those are the people that I want to take. He invites us into his family. He says, take my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Here's what you did back in this day. If you were trying to train a young ox in how to walk in the right way, you would yoke him with a stronger ox. So what would take place is you'd have this big strong ox and this little ox and they would share the same yoke But the strong ox would do all the pulling. And the young ox would literally just be in there following. All the weight was lying on the stronger. 
And the young one, just by staying close, learned how to walk in the right way. That's what makes the burden light. All of the requirements, all of the demands that God requires of his children. Jesus fulfilled all of those perfectly. And all that he asks is that you and I would stay close. Here's how that plays out. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross to die for the sins of the world. So do you know what he does? He takes Peter, James, and John, and he pulls them in that garden, and he says, I'm grieved to the point of death. There is a load that I am going to carry. He doesn't ask them to bear that load with him. All he says is, I just want you to be with me. Jesus prays and agonizes and prays and agonizes. And do you know what they do? They fall asleep. Jesus says, you don't even have to go to the cross. I just want you to be close. And they were close and they failed. Jesus goes to the cross. And he goes to the cross smooth. Crucifixion is a horrendous way to die. But the way the gospel authors paint the rest of the story is that as Jesus goes to the cross, he's blindfolded and he's getting smacked by folks and he doesn't lash out. Yeah, he's kind of, you know, spicy and sarcastic when folks hit him. On his way to the cross as he's carrying this cross, he has enough presence of mind to make sure his mom is taken care of. On the cross, he's not calling, hear this, for God's vengeance on wrongdoers, he's praying for God's goodness and forgiveness on the people that don't want God's guidance. He dies and he raises from the dead. And the disciples don't come to him to find rest. He goes to them. Hear this. It would be easy for us to look and to say the disciples failed when it came to being with him. But listen, even failing when they're close to their Savior changed the way that they reacted. Jesus prayed and God gave him the strength to fulfill God's will. The disciples slept and failed, but after Jesus rose from the dead and he sent them on their mission, what we find is in Acts chapter 3, Do you know what Peter and John do? They see somebody that's lame. They heal him. He stands up and walks. They proclaim the gospel. As a result of proclaiming the gospel, they get thrown in jail. As they're thrown in jail, the spirit breaks them out of jail. They go out. And do you know the first place that they go? To a prayer meeting. And they pray. You ask, why would they pray? Why would they pray? Because they were yoked up with an ox who through prayer was obedient to God even to the point of death. And through that death, Jesus rose and was rested. And he provided rest for their souls. Even in their failing. Just the fact that they were close enough to him, it changed how they moved through life. Then they go back out and preach, get thrown in jail again, set free, and they leave out rejoicing. 
And the rest of them, do you know what they do? They all go to their deaths joyfully. You would say, well, John, that's great. But that's, that's not me. I, I feel like I want to do that, but I get so discouraged. What do I need to do? Do I need to read more, pray more? That's still, <laughs> you're, you're trying to work for something. What you need is to come. To be with Jesus. To be with your Lord. To take all of your doubts all of your concerns to him. And what you find out is this. The Lord revealed himself through the person of Jesus. Jesus was God's son and displayed what God is like. God still does reveal himself supernaturally to us. And one of the most supernatural ways that God reveals himself to us is by changing people, the people that you're sitting next to, so much so that you being in their presence reminds you of the goodness of God. One of the ways that you practically stay close to Jesus is not to distance yourself from his people. It is in isolation where you and I stay and are focused on our worlds. But what being around God's people does is it helps you and I to get our eyes off of our worlds, to be reminded of what God is doing in and through the world. Your success in abiding with Jesus, hear this, will never rise above your commitment to abide with his people. Or just to allow them to abide with you. Hebrews 3 is clear. The way that we maintain our faith in the world is by the encouragement and support of brothers and sisters. That's what you have here. That's what we hope to provide here. Everybody, everybody gets discouraged. Everybody doubts. Here's the good news. When you walk alongside somebody else that knows Jesus, you may get discouraged, but you don't stay discouraged. It may be a long road. It's not a quick fix. But it is a sure one. Come to Jesus. Experience the rest that he wants for your soul. Let's pray. Our Father, you've been so good to us. I pray we wouldn't take your goodness for granted. Um, but that we would accept your guidance, Lord. Father, would you lead us? Would you guide us? Would you protect us? We ask that you would do all this. In Jesus' name we pray.